I'm here with Matt McGregor, and it's our first show of 2022, so let's ring in the new year with a new set of interesting articles in the world of defense. And so the big one that we've got here is the National Defense Authorization Act provision sparks support and skepticism from several experts in NextGov. And one of the big ones here, of course, that we've been tracking for a long time is the uh, what's now Section 1004 in the NDAA, which is the Commission on Planning, Programming, Budgeting, Execution Reform. So this will be a huge uh, congressional commission here that, that's in the NDAA. And it looked like all of the, uh, the, uh, the experts that were quoted in this article were actually pretty bullish on it. Um, of course, Pete Modigliani was quoted in there, our friend, and had a lot of good things to say. And Ellen Lord, actually, kind of, this is the first time I've heard her kind of talk about PBBE reform, but, you know, she brought up some good points as well that the budget process needs to keep up with today's technologies. So um, pretty excited for this one. And I think it's going to be all about who are the commissioners that are kind of selected. It looks like on the timeline, the commission is to be established by the end of January. So that's within the month now. And their first meeting will be in February, where they'll elect the chair and the vice chair. Of course, there's supposed to be 14 commissioners on this thing, um, many of which are going to be chosen by kind of like the chairman and the ranking members from from the major congressional defense committees. And then, of course, the secretary of defense gets a few picks as well. And uh, yeah, the whole thing will get the first briefing June twenty in June twenty twenty two interim report in January twenty twenty three final report in September first twenty twenty three and then the commission terminates in March of twenty twenty four and so thanks to Jamie Graybeal from uh, the Day One Project for providing us a nice little timeline of all the important things going on so any any big thoughts on the PBBE reform? No, it's a long time coming. <laughs> you know, I think. Uh, it's funny because as I've talked to different people about this, uh, you know, as it's come out in some of the press, people have, been, people have said, actually, I did a briefing on that uh, 10, 15 years ago about how the PUB needed to be reformed. So it's, it's kind of funny how, how long people have recognized this needed to happen. But, you know, I think it, it took some momentum. I think you were a big part of that too, Eric, in terms of bringing awareness to it. So uh, so pretty nice to see it's actually happening. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, our first a meetup at a like a coffee shop where we're kind of talking about this this whole thing and uh you know it's been happening pretty fast I, I think but yeah it's been it's been in the hopper it's just you you've never really heard it out loud right like i think there's a lot of people that have talked about it that talked about portfolio management but there's not really been any top leadership discussion that's kind of been public to my knowledge so you know i've been trying to find everything i possibly can on this and there's just like a dearth of information since the 1970s, essentially. Yeah, and I think people always, you know, I think the uh, the reforms, because Section 809 did go after a few things, but, you know, I think the reforms are always around the edges. It was always about, uh, well, you know, if we just increase BTR thresholds, there's people kind of got hung up on reprogramming, uh, you know, BLI consolidation, budget line item consolidation, you know, was tried a few times. You know, so I feel like people have tried some things around the edges and, uh, I think, you know, one appropriator kind of says no, and then every, everybody is, you know, everybody kind of goes back to the way it was. So, yeah, it's interesting to see that Congress was actually able to, uh, bipart in a bipartisan way, actually come to agreement here. I, I'm hopping a little bit here to the next article that's similar, but I, I was really seeing Senator Reid actually say, 
you know, I feel like he was quoting from one of your papers about um, it was uh, one of the relics of those days gone by. And he's like, you made the point about it was a product of McNamara and the WizKids. And I can assure you those WizKids are not kids anymore. <laughs> I thought that was pretty awesome. So it's good to see Senator Reed actually calling it out. Yeah, those WizKids aren't kids anymore. And uh, they basically, after they installed this in the Department of Defense in the 1960s, all the WizKids basically just dipped out, right? And they went to go do other things. McNamara himself went to, like, the World Bank. Um, Charles Hitch became, I think he became, like, president of uh, the University of California system. Alan Enthoven, who was the first director of systems analysis at the tender age of 30, uh, when he came into the Pentagon, he was, um, I believe he went to go do healthcare economics, you know, after he wrote How Much Is Enough. So, yeah, it's interesting that a lot of these whiz kids, they kind of came in, they shook things up, and then they just like wiped their hands of it and just kind of like left the department in a worse place than when they started. And, you know, they didn't, you know, feel the repercussions of what they did. Yeah, I think, I but, think, um, yeah, I think probably some of them probably thought that they were bringing, you know, the best. Well, this is the thing I think we've talked about. They were bringing the best of industry, right? And at that point in time, the way industry was, this this actually made a lot of sense. There just wasn't much look to the future. So it's it's kind of funny. They by not sticking around, they didn't actually see how kind of antiquated what they what they had put in place was. So it's it's kind of one of those things where like, yeah, you actually do have to evolve with the times. A process good for the nineteen fifties doesn't doesn't work fifty years later. Yeah, I always kind of struggle with that one as well because, you know, like the PBBS, I mean, it was invented by people at RAND that really had no industry experience. And then McNamara kind of saw, I guess, the reflection of what he was doing at Ford there and kind of picked it up wholesale. Um, but, you know, I always wondered to what degree it was right for its time. I guess it's definitely right for a high rate manufacturing where you know what you're doing. But even in the 50s in defense, they were doing a lot of, you know, high tech, you know, futuristic kind of stuff. And it feels like um, they just didn't understand how well the process was working. So I don't fault them for trying it because I actually think, you know, from what they knew at the time, it's like, hey, maybe we can plan like technology in the future and use rational analysis to make all these decisions. It's just like no one was willing to course correct when it turned out that that was empirically verifiably false right well i i, I don't fault them either because i i do think a lot of the driving force was the fact that the services i mean today the services don't work great together but we're much more of a joint force you know after goldwater nichols and so you know at least the services are thinking about like yeah i do have to work with i do have to have these things interrupt i need to be able to work together um, it's not perfect, but I, I do kind of feel for the guys back then because the services were pretty much just like completely like screw you to any, any, any other service trying to, you know, hone in on their territory. So, you know, I think from McNamara's point of view, he was kind of like, I know I need to get a joint force together, but I, these services are so, you know, so entrenched. How am I going to get them out of their entrenchment? And the only way to do that is to bring all the control up to the top. And yeah, I think it just like, it was an overcorrection you know, that took, I guess now it's taken 70 years later to, to maybe course correct back a little bit. Um, it's like kind of crazy that not much has changed since, since that time, but I'm not sure the services are working that much more well together either. So, Yeah. I mean, 
I guess in one respect, it doesn't seem like after like the whole point was to create this unified department and like single vision and zero duplication, zero overlap, you know, that pure bureaucratic ideal. But, you know, it seems like I don't even I think that's just a mischaracterization in some ways. And I actually just had a blog post on this where like um, the first comptroller of the of the department for 10 years, I think he's the longest serving comptroller wilford mcneil he basically just called out the WizKid guys for just being ignorant as to how things were actually done and you know like one example he didn't bring this up but like one of the major examples was like how the army and the navy actually worked together on the jupiter missile and then actually when the polaris missile for the navy for under under submersible you know launch of an irbm when they're trying to figure out the you know fire control and navigation the army guys like literally just spent a lot of their time helping the navy you know they're in-house guys that so they kind of had that flexibility um and jupiter was also solving a lot of problems for atlas and the air force so i almost kind of like wonder if it's just like a false narrative that the services didn't work together you know better or in a different way than we have now um and whether you know that competition and that overlapping responsibility, the mutual control that comes from that actually improves things rather than like, just give it to one guy. Nobody can touch him. Therefore, nobody can hold him responsible. Right. That's a good point. And I don't, yeah, I don't think I realized, I don't think I realized that the, the uh, army needed to work that closely together on Jupiter. But yeah, I mean, one of the things is that when you lock down budgets, and maybe that is part of the problem with PVE is when you lock down budgets, into a particular appropriation, which is service specific, you know, like the other services know, there's no way for them to ever get that money or to even really be involved because, you know, if it's in the army accounts, the army's gonna say, I control this, I make the decisions on it because it's in my accounts. Um, whereas if you did have more flexibility, maybe the, army, maybe the army and Navy would be able to say, well, why don't we both chip in on this? Maybe we can work together on that, but it's almost impossible the way things are set up today, unless a program is joint and even F thirty five, the the program, the appropriations are still specific to each service. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Maybe maybe in a way it, we made it worse. PBE made it worse because it's harder to work together, share resources. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's a, there's a ton of ways of looking at this elephant, right? Like tons of ways of putting your hands on the elephant. And I think that's the hardest problem of PBE because it's so systemic to everything that's done and. Let's move on to the next one here. Another major element, I think of PBBE, but most people probably don't think of it that way, um, the selected acquisition reports. So the headline here is Congress extends deadline to replace Pentagon oversight reports from roll call. And so the selected acquisition reports have been coming out since the 1960s, the late 1960s. So McNamara, of course, installed them. And of course, they, they focus on a program, right? The F-35 has a selected acquisition report pulls together all the different like probably two do like dozen at least appropriations um that the f-35 touches and the says okay what was the baseline estimate of the f-35 we thought it was going to cost 30 million a copy and now it's whatever it is 90 million a copy um and they kind of trace like what did they expect what was the budget um how are they performing what were the milestones what are the key kpps so that's the selected acquisition report we've had it forever and it's based on this idea of a program right um, the program of record concept didn't actually start until the PBBE. So that's kind of a new thing in a way. 
um, with that. But the the SARS, this old antiquated report, was supposed to go out in fiscal year 2020. Then DAA said that they were supposed to be terminated after fiscal year 2021. So we're in 2022 now, and the 2022 NDA actually retained the termination, but extended the deadline for two years. And so it seems like what's the holdup? The Pentagon is trying to figure out what they're actually going to do to replace that reporting system. That And they're kind of talking about making information available in real time rather than having these quarterly annual reports. And, of course, the selected acquisition reports, the SARS, are just an annual instantiation with a couple modifications of the quarterly defense acquisition executive summaries, the day's report, right? So um, I'll be interested to see what they're thinking about in terms of real-time reporting or if it's any different. Uh, but what are your thoughts? I think you're a little bit closer to this. So uh, what what have you been hearing on the SARS? Yeah, no, there was, there was a, a discussion about, um, not a discussion. I mean, there's actually been a lot of movement on this about how to replace the SARS. I mean, fundamentally, I don't see the information being that different. Um, I think what it will be is it's not going to be a static report at the end of a year, um, you know, that just kind of collates, you know, what happened. I mean, because basically you only get, Congress is only getting these SARS once a year unless there's some kind of major breach. So, yeah, so basically what it will be is very similar information. I, I don't think they're going to get like a ton of additional information. They may get information on more programs because the SARS are really only for MDAPs. So they may actually, the, the, I think the idea will be to, to kind of, uh, uh, you know, expand, expand the insight. Uh, so yeah, Advana, the Advana system, I don't know exactly how it's going to be rolled out in terms of the, uh, you know, how Congress gets access to it. If it's like they each have their own account or something, but as it is right now, you can log into it and you can see all the information that is reported on a program. So it can have detailed things. It can have, you know, PO assessments and, you know, there, there can be lots of different, different pieces of it, how much they show. I, I don't know, but, but yeah, there's been a lot of movement on that front. There's, there's still some work to be done in terms of pulling together, um, transitioning all the program, all the program information and then making it all cohesive. So, and there's some additional, there's a couple additional data elements that'll be added. And then also it includes the new pathway. So software pathway and MTA. Um, we'll have we'll be more integrated with the MCA and um, you know DBS programs. So you'll be yeah, it, it, it's it's actually much better organized. Uh, but yeah, we'll see how that goes. I did have to laugh at this article though because I mean if you've ever read a SAR, it's it's kind of funny that uh, the Pogo guys think this is you know how awesome this is. I mean I guess it is the best information available in many cases, but I mean it really is a very very limited insight like almost gives you no insight into the real going-ons of a program. You know, I mean, yes, it might show if your APOC has gone up a little bit or if your RDT&E, and it'll show, like, if you slipped some of the major milestones, but it's really focused on the very, very highest level of milestones um, and then whatever other information the program wants to give. So, yeah, it's a, it is a little bit of a shame that, like you, I think you made in your blog post, that we're not kind of giving more details about what's going on because uh, maybe that type of insight would actually be more helpful. And so hopefully we're moving in that direction where we won't have to send these laborious reports over that take forever to, to generate. But programs can go over to the hill and say, oh, you want to, you know, let's deep dive, you know, and let's let's do more of that and have real open discussions about what's going on and then the challenges. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, the SARS are <laughs> at, a, at a very high level and those APUCs and, and PUCs are 
super sketchy at times because they incorporate all of the expectations of the future, right? So like on the F-35, it's like most of the buys are still in the future. And so most of that cost is still what we hope it will be and not what we think it will be. I guess you can go into the annualized figures and recurring costs, flyaway costs to kind of get what the actual costs have been. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, the whole thing about the SARS is they rely on life cycle cost estimates and like these life cycle baselines that go out years or decades at a time. And it was kind of funny that they said, oh, well, the selected, we're not going to give you the SARS with future data in them this year because we didn't have a fit up in the budget. And it's like, yeah, you didn't report the fit up in the budget. Everyone knows that these programs have life cycle cost estimates. There's a current one out there, right? We know that like the, the DOD data warehouse has numbers in the future, even if they don't want to, you know, share them. So um, yeah, I kind of agree that there's just a lot better ways of kind of getting after the oversight, right? Like how about some of the actual cost data reports and, you know, what are the contract costs of those things? What, where did the money actually go? What is, what were, what were the difficulties? What were, what were we having problems in and where are the benefits and what happened in the tests? A lot of that is probably just like narrative and text and ad hoc data tables that make sense to the program, but are not universally able to describe every program. And so I don't know. I, everyone just wants a dashboard, right? And I just don't know how much is really dashboardable in complex defense programs, especially when you get to what you were talking about too, with I, I have software acquisition, I have MTA, they're going to roll into an MCA. I don't even know what a program is because it's living and coming together in real time, you know? Yeah, no, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, a program manager day to day is dealing with an absurd amount of complexity in terms of, you know, is the, you know, how is the contract, you know, going? Are there, you know, are there issues with, you know, performance in different areas? You know, we expected the contract to do this and they didn't. So you're having to go through, manage that. Um, technical issues are popping up all the time and you have to go have Tim's and, you know, get together with the right people to figure out, you know, how do we solve this, this, you know, this little thing, we don't want it to grow into a bigger thing. So you're constantly problem solving and, fighting for money and like doing a million different things. And so it it's like one of those things where like in a dashboard, I think you hit the nail on the head in a dashboard, you might think, Oh, this program is off track because they had to spend additional money, but that additional money could have been because they needed to get people, more people cleared uh, to certain, you know, special access stuff or something, or they, yeah, they need to build a skiff or they needed to stand up another test bed uh, because they realize, like, okay, yeah, we actually need to do more testing than we thought. Like, there's all kinds of things that can drive costs, and a lot, most of them are not malicious. Most of them are not, you know, people say that program is like completely off track. Most of the time, it's not that, like, they've blown, like, you know, they were supposed to, you know, uh, you know, design this thing, and the design is completely out of, you know, out of bed, and there's no way to achieve it, and it was a completely complete screw up. It's usually like a bunch of little small things that sort of add up, and then they create disruption, but. You know, so oversight needs to get to a point where you can talk about those small things and say, yeah, we're really challenged. The contractor thinks this is not included in the contract. We think it is. You know, we're fighting about that. Like, hey, we're, we, we had this issue come up. It's going to cause a month delay, but we think it'll actually gain us, you know, on, the, on the, the back end. We'll actually have a much better, you know, test of result or whatever. You know, so there's all these nuances that if you can have an open, honest conversation, um, without the retribution of we're going to cancel immediately cancel your program if you show any weakness or we're going to take half of your money next year because we think you're you know a failed program 
if you can get if we can get over that, I think the uh, the acquisition process, both with the executive and legislative branch, will be a lot more healthy. So that's yeah, and I think a lot of times like the problems oversight finds are driven by the problems that they create in a way, right? Because it's like okay if you want this program to go anywhere, you got to get, get it done in five years, even if that's not a reasonable target. And then we're going to line up procurement dollars for you in the sixth year. Um, assuming that you've done your development because that's in the plan, because we're not going to approve it unless you can do it in that time and that cost. And so someone says, all right, fine. <laughs> right. But by the time you get, by the time like procurement money staring you in the face and you're not there, it, it was never really a problem of the program. Like these things happen, um, it was never a realistic estimate. You just had to do it because that was the political motivation. And it's just like, okay, well, we're going to go into procurement. <laughs> it's just like, no, you're not ready for procurement. Like, we have to do all this stuff to stop you from getting into procurement when you weren't ready. And it's like, well, I, I had all this stuff lined up because you told me to, even though that wasn't realistic. Right? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Like, like, we need some learning process where we could validate what we were doing before like before development, right? We have to be able to do like learn through development, not pre pretend all of the information is available up front. Yeah, no, I think I think that's the pro biggest problem I have with baselines is it basically forces you to a plan, you know, when you have the least amount of information. And then if you deviate from that plan, you're viewed as a failure when in fact we should be encouraging programs to say, hey, um, halfway through development, I thought I was gonna be done with this in a few years. Um, but I'm being realistic. I really think we need to take another year and work out some of these risks that we didn't expect that, that realized because uh, we want to go into production when we're actually, you know, really healthy and we, we can actually deliver something good. But yeah, the way that a baseline is, is most programs are like, we just need to find a way to get into production because once we're in production, then we're safe and we're not going to get, you know, we're not going to get canceled um, or we're not going to face all this retribution. So you're right. They, they'll, they'll probably there's an incentive to force yourself uh, to hit that milestone, even when it may not have been the best idea. So yeah, without baselines, you don't have that as, as much. So another one that somewhat related, cause we're talking about program analysis and program reporting, but there's also just straight up financial, like, you know, like accounting reporting, right? And so the next one we got, why the Pentagon failed another audit from CNBC and uh, Mackenzie Edglin here is kind of commenting that, hey, it took the DHS, you know, a decade to pass its audit, and it's just a fraction of the size of the Department of Defense. And she was kind of saying here that it's not that the department doesn't know where it's spending its money. It does. It just doesn't track it well at the enterprise level. So, you know, one example is that the audit found that there was a Navy warehouse that wasn't on the property records that had parts worth up to $126 million. Um, from the GAO. And I guess the implication there is like, yeah, the person working there, people in the Navy knew that this warehouse existed. It just w wasn't shown up on, on the, on the uh, audit. And that's kind of like, you know, the light, the, uh, the asset side of the house, which some people say is kind of um, different from like, you know, a, a regular company. We don't need to necessarily value financially every, you know, thing that we've bought. But at least knowing on the liability side, where did all the money go and and making sure that we can reconcile that at an enterprise level and then potentially even right. You know, this is like the holy grail that we in the public sector at least never get to see um, a mapping between all of, like all of the accounting record. Where did the money get spent to programs? 
right? Uh, we usually focus on budgets rather than actual, you know, kind of expenditure or obligational data. So, you know, here's another part on the audit. I think they're, you know, the audit is, of course, very separate from PBBE reform, but I think they both have something to do with this notion of trust that enables the department to do things differently or better or accelerate change in a way. Yeah, I mean, some of these things are, yeah, and I'm glad, I'm glad uh, Mackenzie made this point. This is kind of what I was trying to make, I think, the last time we talked about the audit was that it's not that people are not managing all the money. It's not like it's disappearing. It's, it's just how it's accounted for. And so, yeah, sometimes when you buy parts that are not stock listed, let's say, or have some kind of NSN in particular, um, sometimes those parts can just, they're managed by sustainment. The sustainment folks know where they're at. Uh, you know, they're factoring for them and their budget and their, you know, the things that they need and based on the number of planes they're bringing in or the, you know, the repair rates and all that. So yeah, they're like, it's not that this kind of stuff is not being managed appropriately. I think in 99% of the cases it is, it's just, yeah. How do you, how do you factor for every little piece part um, that collectively adds up to a lot of money? But, you know, I think the way that most organizations, you know, look at is like, why do I need to log every single one of these things? into some central ERP kind of database when nobody cares about it except me. Um, but I think that that mindset is changing. And I think now it's, you know, now, now, now everybody is supposed to care about it or now people are, more people are caring about it. And so I think, I think you'll see that this audit is, is probably driving some better behaviors and it's probably driving ERP systems to improve uh, so that leadership can actually see where all the funds are going. So it's probably good in a way, but it, yeah, I, I'm glad that, I'm glad that she made that point that this is not just, you know, malpractice here. Yeah, I think the the MIPRs are the other one, like those cross transfers, they kind of get lost or they don't get accounted for super well. Um, but the next one we got here, for the Space Force, it's acquisition, 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 the 2022 preview from Breaking Defense. Um, so here, they're, the Space Force is saying that they want to build a resilient force structure. You know, that's kind of a buzzword, resiliency, right? But it's true. Right, we've been talking about these big juicy targets, and so the Space Force leaders want to develop what they call a hybrid architecture, mixing small constellations of large, exquisite, and expensive military satellites with large constellations of smaller, less costly, but st but still bespoke satellites dispersed in a variety of orbits. And so, of course, I was actually listening to a podcast with David Deptula, and he kind of was asked about this, and he pointed out, hey, the Air Force actually invented the high-low mix, you know, with the F-15 and the F-16, my kind of immediate thought on that was, well, yeah, of course, but Big Air Force never actually intended to field the F-16. It was kind of thrust upon them. And then I kind of wonder about what his stance on high-low mix in the 21st century is because he was kind of, you know, against the F-15 by and for the F-35, you know, make sure we get to the full requirement there. So what would be the high-low mix in the Air Force, I guess? I I'm not really sure right now. Uh, but, yeah, so they're, they're trying a similar thing in the Space Force, and I think that kind of movement at least makes sense, and they're kind of couching it in a language that everyone recognizes in the department. Yeah, yeah, that whole high-low thing. I mean, I think the Air Force, I don't think that was ever a strategic thing. I think it was more of something they were stuck with. You know, they, they were trying to get rid of 15s and 16s, and basically being told no in A-10s <laughs> and being constantly being told no. So like, okay, I guess we have a high-low mix here. We're not going to get all the F-22s we want. We're not going to get all the F-35s we want. So, um, uh, so yeah, not sure that was like a huge strategic thing. Although it kind of wound up making a lot more sense 
um, given the diverse mission set that the Air Force has in terms of uh, all the different conflicts that, you know, lower lower intensity conflicts they were involved in, um, you know, we still have things going on in Africa and other places. And so you still do need some of those aircraft with lower cost per flying hour. So, so yeah, it kind of worked out in a way, but uh, yeah, I think most Air Force leaders 10 years ago would have been just fine if every single jet was an F-22 or an F-35. So, so yeah, Space Force, thinking about a hybrid architecture, I think the key here will be is it's not um, 90% super exotic satellites and 10% of like dabble here and there with like, oh, okay, maybe we'll do a tracking layer and call it a day. You know, this really does need to be, um, you know, need to be all in on it. Like there's a lot of opportunities for this proliferate, proliferated LEO uh, sat satellite uh, constellations to, to do various very complex missions uh, much more cheaply, um, or at least the satellites, you know, individually would be a lot, lot more cheap, more cheaply procured, um, and more easily, uh, you know, uh, can handle an enemy sort of disruption. Uh, whereas putting huge satellites, huge, very, very expensive, exquisite satellites in, in geo constellations where they are an immediate target and easily uh, kind of targeted in a, in a conflict um, is, is a lot more problematic. So I, th I, I hope that the, the architecture trends towards a lot more of this proliferated, more or less low, lower complexity, uh, and then those bespoke satellites are, you know, the the real the real, um, you, you know, kind of uh, kind of the exception to the rule. Yeah, but they're also just like what was already programmed and what's already coming down the pike, yeah. right? Next gen OPIR, like we're gonna get it right, <laughs> like that's already there. So they're kind of like, well, we're gonna have the high. It's just, right like that was not in the question I, I guess the question is will they start phasing out some of the high high-end stuff over time through the budget um as they as that like more budget becomes freed up and these programs ramp down i'm gonna make a prediction on next gen okr i think they will launch the polar orbits um i think i think it will be scaled down i think the i think some of the other orbits will uh, the non-polar orbits will be scaled down and and they'll move to the sda model so yeah, I'll make I'll make that prediction. I don't think I don't think it, NG, uh, next gen OPR will be filled in its full its full plan. But but yeah, things like some of the comm satellites that are that are in the works, PTS and PTS, I I think those are too probably too far along. I think they probably will see see them through to completion. And they have some specific missions that they they probably do need them. But yeah, next gen OPR it's going to be interesting because that was like the first big MDAP on the MTA pathway. <laughs> so. They got a lot of heat for it, and you know, hopefully that doesn't take MTA down with it, you know, to a degree. But there's a ton of MTA programs now, right? They're probably closer to 100. Uh, 70, oh, 72. Across. There should there's there should be way there more, you go. but yeah. All right, so the last one we're gonna do here, uh, USS Gerald R. Ford's final weapons elevator passes its test 11 years after original due date from the Daily Press, and the eleven the elevators here can lift more weight up to 24,000 pounds than those on other carriers. Their design also allows for significantly safer operations, of course, because they're kind of electromagnetic rather than all the hydraulics and stuff like that. And they're also arranged differently. Uh, the elevators on Navy's other carriers lift ordinances from magazines deep in the hull directly to the flight deck. Um, and that's where the ordnance sailors must often do their final assembly and arming and all that. Whereas for the Ford, the elevators are set up to deliver weapons in two stages. And so obviously much more safe, but um, 
it, it looks like, you know, the weapons elevators, this shouldn't have been such a huge deal, <laughs> you know, it, I guess in retrospect, but um, it's good to see that uh, the Ford is actually getting out there and hopefully these issues aren't going to be kind of replicated on the 79 and 80 and 81. I think they're already kind of going after 80 and 81 and 79 is pretty deep into construction uh, right now, but um, good to see some progress on you know, the other, you know, we always talk about the F-35 and, and the Ford as like the two kind of like archetypes of major MDAP programs that often kind of need that program structure, right? As opposed to more portfolio or different ways of managing systems. Or at least for the initial building. Yeah, I think maybe for the modernization in terms of, you know, if you can modernize different aspects of the, of the ship and, um, you know, if it's more modularity there, then, then maybe you can adopt more innovative approaches. But yeah, yeah, for something is for something like carriers, and there'll always probably be some carrier in production, right? Because they don't want to lose that workforce. So we'll probably always have some <laughs> some carrier being being produced. Um, it is interesting how you know it always seems to be issues like this that kind of like create a bunch of schedule delays in programs. It's not always the predictable stuff. Like sometimes it's sometimes you think it's going to be the high tech stuff that really kind of puts a program down, and then you know sometimes it's the things that you kind of thought would be you know easily easily handled. Uh, KC forty six is like a great example. The um, the remote the visual system remote visual system that the the boom operators use for actually refueling the jets, uh, you know, wasn't really viewed as a super high risk uh, thing, and so there wasn't as much focus on it. And I think there's good evidence now that the program didn't really pay as much attention to it as they should have. Uh, but that's kind of the biggest issue with the KC-46 right now is that you, the boom operators sort of have this weird parallax where they can't, uh, can't quite line up the, uh, the, the boom with the, uh, with the aircraft because um, it sort of gives them, you know, gives them a weird visual. And so, yeah, they're still working through that. And, you know, I don't think, I don't think that's what we would have thought would have kind of been the issue that languished the, the longest on, on that aircraft. So yeah, it's kind of funny how these things pop up. Yeah, and that's kind of my issue with TRLs, you know, as a basis for like approvals and all that kind of stuff. Cause you know, my, my favorite example is kind of just like the F-35 with, with the gun system. And it's just like, okay, the gun pops out and there's gotta be nothing, you know, like there's nothing T like TRL like two, three, four on, on that. We know how it works. It's just like when it popped out, it created, you know, a different amount of force. And then like the computer system had to adjust for it in flight. And that just took forever. I don't, have they fixed that yet? I'm not even sure. And I think the B and the C, they're not even like, they don't have an internal gun and they're going to have like an external mounted one. And we're not even sure if that's ever going to come something like that. Yeah. But anyway, like a gun, like that, that shouldn't, that would never have popped up on anyone's TRL thing, but it turns out to be a driver of, of performance and, and risk and stuff like that. Well, another one on F 35. Yeah. That one, uh, I think that one is mostly fixed. Um, that was partially because the air force was intent on having a gun. We really wanted to get rid of the damn thing. And the Navy and Marines were like, yeah, we probably won't use it, but in case we do, we'll put one in a pod and we can just stick the pod on there. So we really were trying to get the Air Force to do that, but it just shows you how old school thinking can't, couldn't, couldn't get that out of their head that they needed a gun. But the other one is the helmet. Like the helmet was eating up all of the energy in the F-35 for like a year. Honestly, it was, there were two things. It was the helmet and it was the landing gear on the Navy, the Navy uh, aircraft. 
was like eating up the leadership's attention like no one's business. So yeah, you're right. It's not always those things that, that have low TRLs that sort of eat the firm's lunch. <laughs> all right, well, that's all we got time for this, uh, for this episode. So thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.